The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. Hi, I'm Dr. Suzanne Phillips. And on this show, we'll be addressing many important life issues from a psychological perspective. To do this, I want to include you in the conversation. This is Psych Up Live. I welcome you to listen in and call in with questions and comments to today's show at 1-866-472-5788. 50% of all the children in the U.S. will witness the divorce of their parents. We're very aware of how many children are orphaned because of terrorism and war. Over half of the world's forcibly displaced people are children. Too many children witness domestic violence. How do they manage? Can we foster a child's resilience to handle major life challenges? Can we intervene to offset the impact on their development? In this episode, Dr. Ann Mastin, author of Ordinary Magic, Resilience and Development, and recognized expert on risk and resilience in children, will answer these questions. Dr. Mastin is Regents Professor of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. She directs the Project Competence Research on Risk and Resilience, including studies of children and youth exposed to homelessness, war, natural disasters, migration, and other adversities. She's been recognized for her lifetime contributions to developmental psychology by the American Psychological Association. She's authored more than 200 publications, including her recent book that we'll be discussing today, Ordinary Magic, Resilience and Development. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Ann Mastin. Welcome to Psych Up Live. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay. Uh, We are very lucky to have you. Dr. Mastin, you've been studying resilience and child development. You're an expert in this area. For our listeners, let's start by defining resilience. Well, I think of resilience as the capacity any of us may have at a given time to adapt well to significant challenges. And that capacity is going to depend on many influences. Some of them are in the person, um, in our own skills and personality, and some of them are in the support we receive from our families, friends, and communities. You know, resilience is not like a trait. It's a complicated combination of Uh capabilities and supports that are spread out through the connections we have with many systems, 
both as a person and in the world around us. So it's not just a matter that some children are born more resilient than others. They might be more creative or more athletic, but it's, uh, resilience is something that we can help children even develop Yes, the you know, certainly there are individual differences. Uh, we all have uh, different genes and experiences prenatally, even before we're born. But resilience derives from very robust systems that are part of our, you know, human nature in the sense that that we have bi- a biological and social systems that have come about over the millennia to help support us adapting well, and we're all, resilience is always changing, and so much of resilience is in our social relationships and in the communities around us, and a very young baby may be very vulnerable and dependent, but they have a very powerful protection system in their caregivers and family, and our cultures and many of our traditions have come about because they protect us in adversity. So the name of your book, Dr. Meston, is Ordinary Magic. And when we spoke, I said to you, I don't know if magic is ever ordinary, but you have a meaning for this. What, what brought you to the title in terms of all the research you've done, Ordinary Magic, Resilience and Development? Well, my intention is that to underscore that the most powerful protections we have as human beings are very fundamental to being human, and they seem like magic, but they're really quite ordinary in the sense they're common, and they're a common part of our human heritage. And it's intended to, you know, get that title's intended to get people thinking. And when people first started doing research on how is it that some people manage to do so well or recover from adversity, I think we were expecting that there would be some rare and extraordinary um, influences, but it turned out that the most powerful protections for human beings are very common, ordinary human relationships and, you know, a human brain in good working order. And many of the characteristics that develop with ordinary support from families and friends and our communities. So the title is intended to emphasize that our capabilities for resilience uh, come about through very common resources and tools and they only seem very powerful because we, I think we tend to underestimate what, what our human potential and capabilities are. Okay, so if I'm a parent um, of young children or even, I, and I want to ask if it's too late if I'm a parent of teens, what are the kinds of things that I might do to foster resilience in my children? Well, the most fundamental thing parents do is simply raising healthy children. In the course of child rearing, parents serve, you know, play many roles in promoting healthy development, healthy physical, emotional development, the competence of their children. And they do that in multiple ways. They provide emotional security. They, they care for their children. So, in ways that children learn you can count on adults 
and, and children feel more secure. When children feel loved, they're, they feel, have a great, gain a sense of self-worth. Parents throughout a child's life um, are, are always looking out to protect their children from terrible experiences, but also to give them the opportunity to take some falls. We, parents often cushion their children, but they also want their children to learn how to manage on their own. And some of the best ways that we learn to um, deal with stress is to have some practice. It, mm-hmm. It's not the case that no experience is good. We, all, we need some experience with adversity to learn that we can learn what to do and learn that we can handle it. it it's very similar to our own immune system. It's, you know, for our immune system to work well, we need to practice. Our immune system has to experience with exposure to things in the environment and then fight them off. So, you know, getting small colds and things as a child grows up develops our immune system so it can protect us from the environment in which we are going to be living over Mm. our life course. But, you know... Parents are special in a way because they have so many different roles. Parents also help their children learn a language, learn a culture. They model ways of problem solving for their children. They show their children, you know, when and how to ask for help, how you can calm yourself down, how friends can help you, and so forth. Mm. Now, someone just asked me today... um, if you have a four-year-old and you want them to try um, a sport or go to a camp where you learn uh, soccer, basic soccer, or dancing, or swimming, and the child doesn't want to do that, the question was, shouldn't you really push it a little, or should you just say, that's it, forget it? Well, the the really tricky part of parenting, of course, is knowing when and how much to push, as you say, or to, or to put a more positive word on it, encourage mm-hmm. a child. And I think our, our parents have to use their judgment about a given child. And, you know, some children um, need a different kind of parenting. Some are shy and reluctant to try new things. Others are very bold. And our role as a parent will, you know, depend on, to what we know about our own child. And if we believe they're ready, I think often parents will, you know, encourage strongly, but maybe break the process into little steps mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you try something similar or you, or you practice or you go look and see how much fun the children are having at this camp or this swim lesson or whatever. You can kind of do a little breakdown of steps till you're, you know, to build up that confidence and mastery. Good parents and good teachers do this all the time. They mm-hmm. are, are kind of breaking things down and thinking about what the child is ready for. But, you know, if they're very confident a child can do it, they will really encourage them to do it and emphasize how much fun it's going to be or that sort of thing. So there's no one answer to that because I think... Like all good education, good good parenting takes into account the situation and the nature of the child. 
Mm. When one very attuned father, when the little one was sort of overloaded with, I don't know, I don't know how to play basketball that well. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, so the dad said, "Well, we're going to watch, and you can try, and we can also do a little bit at home," which is what they did. Um, right. And so I think, you know, one of the things I know that's part of the ordinary magic that you spoke about is that there is an attunement by a loving, protective parent. Um, I, I remember that um, after 9-11 here in New York, we so many of the folks I worked with were single parents suddenly. You know, within a day, within an hour and a half, they were single parents of very young children and sometimes teens. And their biggest worry was, how will my child be okay without dad or without mom? Um, and so, you know, the question becomes, how does a single parent, if there's been a sudden loss of a parent, um, how do they proceed? How, what do you suggest? Well, of course, these are major losses you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, a, you know, a family will go through a lot of adjustment in that kind of a context and, and grieving processes. I think when a situation like that happens, especially if it's sudden, um, it, it's when you realize how important it is to have backup and, you know, connections with other people, social supports, um, and helpful people in your environment. And, you know, parents can um, look out for that kind of support. But ideally, I think it's good to have multiple people in the lives of your children and, you know, stay connected to family and friends and others who can provide additional supports when you need it. And, you know, the most important thing when a child is separated for any reason from a a very important parenting or caregiver, a parent or caregiver, is either to reunite if that's possible or to make sure that someone is stepping into that role and, you know, fulfilling the roles of the person. There's still going to be loss experienced, but we know from lots of observation and from lots of research that children do recover from major losses, Mm -hmm. and whether it's in, you know, the context of 9-11 or in a disaster or in something more... um, common like a car accident or something like a health problem, you know, it, but it does help to have uh, more support in the environment. And it also is important for parent, the parent who may be the remaining single parent to make sure they're taking care of themselves. Yes. Mm. Sort of like on the airplane when you give, they give that instruction about put your own oxygen mask on first. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, we, each of us, in order to be a good parent, needs to have adequate support. I mean, it's, it's an exhausting task in everyday normal life. And when you're facing a major transition and loss like you're describing, it, it, it takes a lot of energy uh, and stress management by the parent. And so it's important that the parent get the kind of support they need, and that's often available from friends and extended family. I'm loving what you're saying because we, in in fact, did find that when 
uh, parents, and we did this through the American Group Psychotherapy Association when we provided groups for the parents or anyone who was bereft, providing that that source of resilience for the parent allowed them to pass it forward to the children. Because mm-hmm. if, if the remaining parents is saying, we're, it's okay, we're, we're going to go on, despite tears, that doesn't mean we're not going to go on. And it's just what you said. You know, a group brainstorms together and says, I know a coach that might help him to a little one who didn't want to go on the field again without daddy. So that the more support a parent gets, I mean, over and over, I know you've said in the book and in the research even if it's a different, loving, protective caregiver, that support to a child is key to dealing with the unexpected. That's right. I mean, that, that's probably the most powerful message from all of the research, the importance of, for children of a loving adult. And if it can't be the parent, someone else has to step in to that role. And ideally multiple someones, mm-hmm. um, often, mm-hmm. often in the family or in the neighborhood, but it can be, uh, you know, a group that's formed for that kind of help. It can be professional help, but I think often there are informal networks of connection and friends who can provide enormous support to a parent in a very, to get through a very difficult situation. I think it's really difficult when a whole community is going through a major disaster. And, or, you know, in the case we have, we have now more displaced refugees in the world than we've had since World War II. And when you have a whole people, a group of people, a community, everybody affected either by a natural disaster or by conflict and war, as we're seeing around the world, that's uh, even more challenging because a lot of those informal networks get disrupted by everybody moving around. And it's really important that we continue to offer, you know, so the, the kind of social support that families need. And, and in the case of families with young children, a lot of that support needs to come to the parent. The parent can do their job if they have enough support. So that brings up a really g- great question because sometimes, as you say, if the whole community's moving, walking, being displaced, you said in one part of your book, if the parents' assets are hijacked, what what can they use to protect their children? Um, we're going to take a break, but so one of the questions that I that I want us to address is how can we, in the face of adversity, and I know you find it. How does a child manage through this? How do we actually see some of these children cope when they've come from situations like child soldiers or orphans? I, I, my one, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to hear that too. So let's take a break and come back and answer some of those questions. You, you've been listening to Psych Up Live, and today we're speaking with Dr. Ann Maston. She's the author of Ordinary Magic, Resilience and Development. And our question is, can we build resilience and protective factors even in the face of not the day-to-day challenges, but the war, the hurricane, Katrina, um, the major uh, migration of, of a town? Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with expert Dr. Ann Mastin and I just asked Dr. Meston the question, how does it happen that a child soldier manages to stay resilient? How does it happen that an entire town, you know, somehow migrates somewhere and then there's a fire and they have to leave again? How when parents are worried that this whole situation whether it's a 9-11 situation or a hurricane, is going to scar their child for life. How do we help the parent, and how is it that some children just make it? What do you think, what has your research shown, Dr. Maston? Well, you're asking a question about, you know, these extraordinary adverse experience like war and being a child soldier. And in some situations... The, the trauma is so overwhelming that you would not expect a child to do very well unless you provide, you know, changed conditions. You make sure they stay connected with their caregiver. You get support from other people in the community. It, child soldiers who are kidnapped and kept in horrible situations, experiencing a lot of violence, those young people 
did not do especially well. But mm. they began to recover after they were removed from the terrible situation. Okay. So there are some circumstances that are so terrible, you need to get children out of there. And you need to provide a, a recovery environment that's more positive and supportive. And there's been some wonderful work showing how child soldiers recover and how well they can do when people reach out, um, whether it's professionals who reach out or the community welcomes them back. Some cultures have cleansing ceremonies and welcome ceremonies for young people returning. Um, Some young people have benefited from the outreach efforts of our international humanitarian community Mm. that, you know, including UNICEF and Save the Children and Doctors Without Borders and many other groups that try to help young people on the ground who are coming out of terrible situations. And they try to provide, first and foremost, safety and then connections, safety Mm -hmm. and reconnection to... Ideally to family and community, but if that's not not possible for some reason, then connections to a new welcoming community where you can begin to rebuild your life. Um, A lot of young people coming through refugee situations are looking for, you know, opportunities to go to school and to go to college. They're looking for opportunities that feel normal again. Mm-hmm, that help mm-hmm. them get a sense that there's a future here. And I, I've always been very struck by the desire of young people and their parents and often communities as well to get school going again mm-hmm. and, and other, or places for children to play. Um, I remember after Katrina, um, some of the national uh, responders were wanting uh, communities in New Orleans to wait to get still school started because it was still so much cleanup to do and so forth. And in some cases, the schools went ahead and reopened mm-hmm. because they felt that it was so important to the children and the parents. It's a school starting up again was a symbol mm-hmm. of recovery. And after the tsunami, that terrible tsunami and earthquake in Japan that damaged the Fukushima cities, including school and also places to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not so easy to create safe places to play in the aftermath of a disaster, but it's very important. And I think there's growing recognition worldwide from experience and research on disasters and, and conflict and terrorism and so forth about how important it is to reestablish that sense of normal. You need to reunite families, of course. That's a very high priority. But also, very quickly in a refugee situation, even in a refugee camp, like we, there are a lot of refugee camps right now in um, parts of the world, and the families often want to see a school set up right away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the kids want to go. Yeah. And ideally, they want an internet connection as well. <laughs> I mean, and that that's becoming possible that's now. Yeah, it's it great. makes them feel connected and normal. Well, and, and that's powerful. 
after the Chinese earthquake, some of our members from the American Group Psychotherapy Association went back to their own, they were from the, the, those areas of the earthquake, and one of them, lovely young woman, um, she set up with others an, a tent school right away. Right. Mm-hmm. And to see the pictures of these little ones, she brought them also little portable cameras, and mm-hmm. they, it just redefined what had happened. They took pictures. Right. You saw them laughing and playing. I, I couldn't agree more, and, and you're so right. In these refugee camps, for children, normal doesn't take a lot, but it does take adults believing in the magic of, it's that ordinary magic again. Um, right. It doesn't uh, take really special, rare kinds of things. Right. You know, some some basic, fundamental things that are we can provide as human beings or with very limited resources can go a long way. Now, of course, you have to have, you know, medical care and clean water, these, these sort of basic needs. Um, but it, it's extremely important to have, um, you know, connections with loved ones and to have a sense of hope mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there's going to be recovery, that, they, you know, there's something down the road that's positive. And I think all of these things we've been talking about provide that sense of future and hope and things getting back to normal. Well, when you speak about the child soldiers coming back, now, as you say, some things are so, so adverse, so traumatic. There has to be, and there is, some scarring, certainly some registering of the trauma. But if we believe in people's capacity to reconnect, um, then I sort of, you know, love the fact that your research showed children could come back and in a community of recovery begin to find a way to grow again and to develop again. Right. I wonder I, if you could share the story about the, the Romanian orphans um, and how striking that comeback was. Well, the, one of the um, major issues in the end of the last century was the establishment of these large orphanages during the Ceausescu regime in Romania. And when that regime fell there were a lot of adoptions um, of kids who had been left in these orphanages where there may have been, um, you know, enough food, but there wasn't enough uh, stable care by caregivers there. And most orphanages simply cannot, you know, resemble the the quality of care and love and individual attention that you need from a family. But there, there's been research showing that children who were adopted into, you know, loving, ordinary families, either within their own country or elsewhere, did often make a very powerful recovery. But, the, you know, some of them were affected by, if they stayed in an orphanage for too long and there, there was neglect, um, some children are affected for a long, long time by that. Or mm-hmm. they had inadequate nutrition, some children, right. in various orphanages around the world. Their, their, their growth is stunted because they didn't have enough nutrition or they didn't have enough medical care. Um, but they're, they're often, you know, huge gains. And if children are 
uh, taken out of that kind of neglecting situation very, very early, they often do spectacularly well and recover very, very well. Um, but we, we've learned a lot about what children need. And, you know, I think that um, it, it's certainly a mistake to think you come, around, come away from some horrible experience without any aftermath. And one of, one of the images I keep in my mind that I think many people do from that era is the girl in the picture from the Vietnam War, the young girl mm. who uh, was burned by napalm. Yes. And there was that famous picture of her running down the road. And there was a later, there's a later follow-up, a beautiful follow-up picture that was in Life magazine uh, showing that girl and her baby. And you can mm. see in this photograph the pictures of the burn, the scar tissue from the burns on her back. Mm-hmm. But she survived and grew up and had ch- children and a family. And, and that emblem of resilience that even though you have some experience that leaves scars, you still can, in many ways, recover over your lifetime, mm. um, I think is a very powerful one. It is a powerful example. Now, sometimes people will talk about, and sometimes schools are faced with a situation where they're aware that the parents' assets or ability to respond are compromised, let's say, by drugs. But the children, there's no way those children are being moved out of that setting. And so the question becomes, or it's sufficient enough that they're not going to be moved out. So the question becomes, how do we intervene? When we talk about intervention strategies, part of it is promoting resilience with the attunement, the caregiving, the motivation to succeed, problem solving, cultural strategies. What about intervention? What do you suggest for that? Well, of course, we have a lot of you know, social services. Um, I think a lot of communities provide emergency services in the form of, for example, a crisis nursery where a parent who is worried that they're, you know, losing it or, you know, might harm their own child can get help, respite care from a crisis nursery. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a growing sense that our intervention should be more uh, holistic, that, you know, more integrated so that the parent and the children are, are getting support as a family unit, um, having home visiting and family advocates and many other programs like that that make it, make it possible for a family to get support for the whole family, including the children, without you know, having the children and parents separated, I think is becoming more common. I think that we, if we think about all the layers of resilience, it helps to, to consider what interventions we might think about in a situation of a family struggling because a parent is incapacitated for some way. And that, that could be from a health problem as well as an addiction-type problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to recognize that, uh, you know, a child's resilience can come from multiple relationships. And it's important that high-quality child care 
and high-quality schools be available. The more time a child in a family that isn't functioning very well can spend, you know, in a school environment or a child care environment where there's very, very good support and where even the caregiver may have support mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the teachers or the family social worker or others in that environment is very important. And, you know, you, the, you know the, more, the more layers of, there are like yeah. that or opportunities for children to be in a supportive, normative context, even though their family isn't functioning too well at the present time, the, the better it will probably be for that child. You know, you just described, we had on the show the American Association of Youth Caregivers, the children who are the caregiver for an ill adult or disabled sibling and don't quite make it to school as a result. And that program did exactly what you're saying. The community stepped up. The children became part of a group. The school stepped up. They provided books. They provided computers. They provided after-school activities. They provided respite. They brought home services into the sick or disabled family member. It's just what you said. It all the different layers coming together made such a difference in those children's lives. I agree, and I think there are some wonderful examples. There, there, there are examples with older youth, too, older children mm-hmm. and youth. Um, some of your listeners may have seen the documentary film Paper Tigers. That mm-hmm. It's about a high school and what, how they changed their way of operating to try to provide a lot more support to young people. Mm. who were in trouble, and the, and the film documents the incredible response of the children over the course of the, a high school year. But it's a wonderful film. And, uh, the, you know, I think there's a lot of documentaries illustrating what can ch- happen if you pay attention to, you know, trauma and its impact on family systems and what you can do to alleviate the stress and to provide resources and opportunities for resilience to grow in a community. I think that for a community as well as for individual parents, it's what you're saying is there's a very wide window of opportunity. I mean, we don't have to just think of it as head start, but you're saying even at the teenage level, and I would say the young adult level, almost, I mean, you can't be, I, I couldn't do my work if I didn't believe At any point, people can benefit from intervention, support, and the kinds of protective factors that you're speaking about. Well, I totally agree. I mean, I feel that there are windows of opportunity over the whole entire life course. I think that there there are some important early windows. I mean, we know that some of the most important adaptive systems in an individual are taking shape early in development. So, you know, brain de- we have to protect brain development as much okay. as we can yes. early in development. But we know there are later windows, too. We know that in early adolescence, so many things are changing in the course of maturing and moving into new kinds of schools. Um, or, you know, societies often have rites of passage and ceremonies to try to support positive transitions into adolescence. Um, in the resilience literature, there's a many examples, too, of young people that get off track in their teenage years, and then they get back on track and show a lot of resilience as they make the transition to adulthood. And, 
in many ways, that late adolescent, early adulthood window appears to be a very powerful opportunity window for turning your life around. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, it's not a coincidence that so societies offer many opportunities in that age range to move to a different environment, to join the military or mm. apprentice. We have mentoring at that age. Kids go, can start work training programs or go to college. It's also often a window of important changes in the way the brain is thinking. The final stage of brain development where we get our full capacity for planning ahead doesn't really end until mid-20s, mid to late 20s. So there's kind of this surge of capability in thinking ahead in the late teens and early 20s. And I think often what happens with a young person who's going through that change is they're like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going so well. Maybe I better rethink what I'm up to here. Mm -hmm. And as young people begin to look around and think about the future, they often are able to connect with opportunities. We've got to make sure they can connect with mentors and adults who can support a change in direction. Okay. Um, It's such a valuable message. Let's take a quick break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Ann Maston, who's sharing so much of the wisdom of research about being able to hold on to and grab and expand resilience across the ages. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. the Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel, from maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. It's Dr. Suzanne Phillips with Dr. Ann Mastin, and we've been talking about resilience. Um, There's a wonderful story that I want Dr. Mastin to share, but before we do that, Dr. Mastin, how would our listeners, you've done talks online, how would they find you, and how would they order your book? Well, online, I think I'm very easy to find. Um, If you put my name into any search engine or Google my name, Anne with no E, and then Mastin is M-A-S-T-E-N. I come up, and you can search for videos or search for my um, website at the University of Minnesota. In terms of um, getting my book, it's available in paperback now, so it would be less expensive, but you can order it on Amazon, or you can order it directly from Guilford press online, very easy to do. And I also uh, regularly teach one of those mass online open courses, a MOOC, uh, on resilience and development from a global perspective. Um, I've done this twice before and and had people from 170-something countries participating, thousands of different people, and it's been fascinating to hear their different perspectives on resilience. But that course is offered on Coursera that, you know, and you can find, you know, go to the link. Um, we're going to reopen it again soon, later this summer. And so you could take that if you, if you're interested. And that's had each, it's six weeks of material, but each week is just very brief videos. It's most of the classes, you know, the 10 minute videos about different aspects of resilience. It includes, you know, the stories of ordinary magic, but also, you know, what we know about children in disaster, children in war, and so forth. And, um, you know, I think I'm pretty easy to find. Short okay. talks, long tops, talks, and so forth. Good. And they're very good. I, I suggest that people look for them. So talking about stories of resilience, you were just talking before the break about that window of opportunity going all the way and importantly through adolescence. And I I remember when we spoke before, you told me the story of a young man that made a surprising turnaround. Yes, well, this is one of my favorite stories, and he's not only given me permission to tell it, but he is featured in the MOOC. He um, tells his story in a series of videos. And um, anyway, his name is Michael Mattis. And I met him when I, there, were, there was an article about him in my alumni magazine here at the University of Minnesota, and I thought, I have to go meet this person. <laughs> so Mike is a classic example of a late bloomer, and, you know, he had a very difficult life as a child. His mother had serious problems with alcohol addiction, and he had a stepfather who was very harsh, and, um, you know, he was in some ways neglected and mistreated, although when his mother was not under the influence of alcohol, she did provide care, and he had a 
grandmother who was helpful, but she died when he was a child. Anyway, he, he lived in Minneapolis here, and he reports that and has his arrest records for being arrested, you know, a couple dozen times as a teenager. He got off track. And then when he was around 17, he decided that he should turn his life around, and he joined the military. And this, this was during the Vietnam War, so he was able to get in despite his uh, adolescent uh, court records. And he, he tells the story of how he... You know, that process of going in the military, it wasn't all smooth sailing, but he was able to get through it with a, uh, you know, discharge, honorable discharge, which made it possible for him to go to a community college. He met a mentor who helped him, a physician, as he, you know, came back to Minneapolis after the military. And he went on to medical school and became a very successful surgeon. Uh, he was a surgeon when I met him, and his his life story was featured on the show PBS Nova television show called This Emotional Life. Oh, nice! Mm-hmm. And it, there, there's a, one of the segments in that show features his story, and you, so you can uh, find that online as well. But in, in the MOOC, he tells not only more details about his childhood and what what his life was like, but also you know, his life afterwards. You know, life is all about ups and downs. It doesn't mean just because you show resilience at one point in your life doesn't mean that, you know, life is smooth sailing from then on out. You know, right. he has described many ups and downs, but, you know, he's he's a striking example of how he began to, he was a very intelligent person. He began to realize this isn't going well and I'm going to end up in prison if I keep up my behavior, and he made that choice to get out of Minneapolis and change his environment and and clean up his act. And he he says the health, you know he'd never really been healthy until he went to military training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also he's a very uh, social person. He connects well to people, and mm-hmm. I, it was very striking to me hearing his story. How often people connected with him mm-hmm. at the right time. And I think he really, you know, was a person who, you know, responded well and connected well with other people. And when he decided to put his social skills and his, um, you know, intelligence to work in a positive direction, took him a long way. Mm. And he, he feels that some of the things he, some of the, talent he used for troublemaking in his teenage years actually turned to, once it got turned in the right direction, helped him as a surgeon. <laughs> and he tells that story. So it's fun and interesting to hear what he has to say. But it's, it's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a typical late bloomer who got his act together with the help of other people in, mm. in the transition to adulthood. Mm. It works some ordinary magic for him. Uh, it's a great story. So, Anne, what would you say um, to our listeners in terms of a take-home message? We have parents raising little ones. We have people who've been through adversity. What would be the most important protective factor that a parent could use in fostering resilience and turning it into ordinary magic? Well, I would want everyone to remember that there's many pathways to resilience. But probably the most powerful protective factor in all of human life 
are relationships, loving relationships. And the, the relation, you know, the close relationships of a, a, a parent for a child, friends for each other, romantic partners. Uh, you know, we are social beings and positive relationships are a very powerful, protective factor all throughout our life. So the parent who knows that they're there for their child is really doing something to enhance their child's resilience. Yes, the, the, a parent, you know, the loving and caring of a parent, they provide, the, they build those fundamental skills, they, but they also build the, the emotional security. They make sure that their children have um, healthy development as well, I mean, healthy brain development as well as healthy attitudes toward life. Um, they help their children find opportunities but in many, many ways, the, the, the relationship a parent has, a competent, caring parent with a child, fosters, you know, an expectations and knowledge about the world that form kind of a foundation that a person takes forward in life and can build other, build other positive relationships as they go to school and meet and make other friends and get and carry on with their life. But parents, as I said at the very beginning of this show, provide, you know, serve many roles and they provide many kinds of support. It's not an easy job, that's for sure. Mm. But um, the relationship itself of a parent with a child is probably the most important foundational uh, step for resilience. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, Dr. Meston, not only for coming on the show, but for all your research and your your book. It really unlocks a way to promote resilience in children worldwide. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I want to thank our listeners. Remember, by this evening, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, and on iTunes under Psych Up Live. Next week, we'll be speaking about the step family experience. More than 60% of families are blended. They're in step families. And we have with us Samantha Wall. She's the editor of an important, it's a fascinating, a poignant book called Blended. And three of her contributing writers, Betsy Fassbinder, Gigi Rosenberg, and Emma Tai, they'll be sharing their stories. Trust me, you will laugh and cry listening to these. Drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, thank you again. Please take care and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 